In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Politically Georgia podcast, where we bring you news and analysis from all the latest Georgia shenanigans in Congress and under the Gold Dome. And today we're joined by AJC Enterprise reporter at large, Tamar Hallerman, to talk about an unbelievably crazy, eventful week, really, uh, you know, morbid week um, in Georgia politics about how coronavirus and and this pandemic has really upended everything that we do in our jobs and our lives. Thanks, Tamar, for joining us. <laughs> Thank you. It's been so impossible to keep up with just how quickly the world is moving and, and how many facets of life have, have changed at just warp speed. So I'm glad we're here to kind of recap all of it today for my sake and hopefully everybody else's too. And we should note, with all those warp speed changes, we're recording this on a Friday morning from our respective homes, sheltering in place. So by the time you hear this, there might have been some changes. Since the last time we recorded this podcast, there's been incredible changes. I recorded it last at Crossover Day, uh, which was last Thursday around, I don't know, midnight dinner time is when I recorded it. And we thought that lawmakers would be indefinitely suspended. As it turned out, they had to come back into a special session on Monday to grant Governor Kemp, we use this, we don't use this term lightly, more powers than any modern governor in Georgia history has ever had. Um, He was granted by an overwhelming vote, uh, extreme powers under what, what is called the Public Health Declaration Emergency Law in Georgia, which gives him the powers to suspend laws, to commandeer private property, to, um, to take command of civil forces, to do a host of other things, including restrict travel, force treatments and vaccines, do all sorts of things that he says are, are essential for dealing with this pandemic crisis. Exactly. And and we saw uh, almost immediately after the legislature granted him this power, he turned around and ordered all K through 12 schools. Um, so that includes secondary, post-secondary as well, um, to, to have them shuttered until the end of March. And he said he needed the legislature to, to vote in order for him to do that. And the governor has also been under increasing pressure um, to mandate that restaurants, bars, gyms, and um, other locations where you typically have big group gatherings to close those as well. Um, he's really resisted that so far, but we've seen a lot of mayors, including Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, do it locally instead. 
Yeah, and it's a really tough position for the governor to be in because sitting here from Metro Atlanta, we can say, yeah, this is a this is a no brainer. Uh, in my city of Dunwoody, they've already done the same. They've already restricted restaurants to in to um, takeout only, and they've closed down bars in the city of Atlanta, as you just mentioned. They have in a lot of other suburban places, but um, not to say it won't touch ru- vast parts of rural jo- Georgia, but. And although it, there are cases, especially in Doherty County and in, in some other um, South Georgia counties, it hasn't had a widespread effect there yet. It certainly will. There's no, there's no one, there's no expert saying that it won't be um, hitting rural areas just as hard as it's hitting uh, urban and suburban areas. But um, what he said repeatedly is that health experts are telling him um, that's not the call they want him to make yet. Meanwhile, other states have done so. Florida has done so. North Carolina has done so. Texas has done so. And then out west, where it's been hit the hardest, California, Washington State, Oregon. You know, in California, there's a basically a, a stay home from work, uh, stay home in your home at, at all costs um, uh, declaration now from California's governor. And we're not saying that will happen in Georgia, but I, I, I fully expect a, a more restrictive mandates from the governor as this continues. Exactly. And the, and the governor has suggested in, in his recent news conferences that he is open to revising that if he gets um, kind of stricter, um, you know, guidance coming down from the CDC and, and from authorities about what should be done. Um, but it's worth taking a moment to talk about exactly what he's weighing here. You know, at the first, you know, on the one hand, he's a Republican who doesn't like having these big mandates come down from, from governments. And so Certainly, as the legislature was debating these emergency powers, they were talking about how long he should have them, trying to limit um, how long he has these powers. Um, And at the same time, if you are to advise people to shelter in place and, and to ban large gatherings and and close bars and restaurants, that that could have a huge economic impact. You're already seeing a surge of folks in metro Atlanta and even outside um, filing for unemployment benefits this week. And you, you mandate restaurants to close in tiny little towns where already they've been struggling economically for years. Um, that really cuts off a huge economic engine in, in a lot of these places. Yeah, and I kind of did some cold calls to to some of these restaurants and and small business owners in in, in South Georgia towns because usually I would I would try to get out there myself, but we are we're kind of in a semi lockdown mode ourselves up here, um, and I talked to many many restaurant owners, including a few in, in East Georgia County where there hasn't been a case yet. And she goes, yeah, we know, we, we figure it's coming. We know that the governor is going to have to end up imposing a restriction like this, but we're hold, hoping that he holds out as long as he can because I'll lose my job and so will five other employees at this little tiny restaurant, um, and it, it, including one of them has five kids, you know, and this is her sole job. So there's an economic impact that he's trying to balance. It is not an easy decision Although, you know, there, there are health experts who say it is an easy decision. They should do so right now, right? There are people who say that he should follow um, Mayor Bottoms' lead immediately, including a growing number of Democrats. House, House Minority Leader Bob Trammell, the top Democrat in the Georgia House, said that on Friday, Friday uh, Thursday night, I should say. He said, I don't know why the governor is not following Mayor Bottoms' lead here. He should do this immediately to save lives. And we could find out down the road that, that there is an outbreak caused by, you know, at a restaurant. You, you just don't know in this situation. Um, there's no crystal ball to tell you. And we're, this is oversaid, but we are in new, brand new territory here. And um, we're seeing some governors take sweeping actions and others like, 
the weird dichotomy to me is that the governor has more more power than any other governor in, in, in recent Georgia history. And so far, he's not really using it. Not to say he won't, because I'm sure he will. But so far, he's using it. He's using his bully pulpit to do a lot of urging and not ordering. Exactly. And, you know, the politics, the politicking and all of this is already starting to infuse everything. Um, you mentioned State Rep Bob Trammell and, and his calls for Governor Kemp to take um, to take more sweeping actions. And, and he was almost immediately rebuffed online by, by John Porter, uh, Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan's chief of staff, um, who pointed out that that Trammell and a lot of House Republicans were the, or sorry, a lot of House Democrats um were ones who were pushing for expiration dates on on Kemp's emergency powers and and were really skeptical about Kemp taking these these broad actions. So already we're seeing fighting about Governor Kemp's response and whether he's doing enough. Let's talk more about that special session because this was extraordinary too. Lawmakers just days earlier have been told they were indefinitely suspending the session. A lot of people, it was kind of like an abrupt end of the last day of school. Everyone was kind of saying goodbye. No one knew when they'd see each other again. It was very bizarre. Um, there is a, uh, a, in some, in, in some sense, sort of emotional too, you know, a lot, lot, some of these lawmakers were older. There was concerns that they, uh, people were worried about their health and saying, Hey, just hunker down, go back home and, and don't get out of, don't, don't go outdoors if you don't need to. Um, it was a, it was a tough day for a lot of lawmakers. That was a Thursday on Saturday, governor camp calls the special session, calls lawmakers back into the chambers, a lot of them didn't come. Dozens of them stayed home because um, all he needed was basically a quorum. Um, but more than 100 showed up, and it was a very unique special session. We thought it would last maybe an hour at most. It ended up lasting about eight, and that was because the Senate and the House, even though they had kind of struck a deal we heard the night before, couldn't agree on language about whether to set an expiration date on this emergency declaration. Uh, Senate, Senate leaders wanted kind of side with the governor, kind of letting him, uh, giving him the power to call it off whenever he, he deemed the emergency over. House leaders, Democrats and Republicans, as you know, not just Trammell, but also, also the Republican caucus, um, united to essentially say that they wanted a, the opportunity to come back in April, a month from that day, mid-April, um, to, to vote whether or not to extend these powers. And who knows what the world is going to look like in mid-April if we're all going to be ordered to shelter in place by by the government or or maybe cases will will finally start to to subside. But it's worth mentioning how many of these lawmakers are older people. So many of them are 60 years old and plus. And that's the the demographic that's that's most at risk for catching coronavirus and having really dire consequences. So there's a real thought about where the world is going to be. And and in the Georgia legislature, just like in Congress, there's no way for them to to vote remotely. You know, they have to be in the chamber. They have to congregate in, you know, in, in these tiny spaces where it's sitting in their desks, they're inches away from each other. And that creates it's a huge set of problems, as we saw earlier this week when when State Senator Brandon Beach came to the the state legislature two days after he was tested for COVID nineteen, and it later turns out he was infected and and potentially put everybody else at risk. Yeah, let's talk about that because that that is a uh, a gloomy part of this whole story. Because while most of the public was has has been kind of been away from the Capitol for the last week, um, last week. Uh, House Speaker David Ralston urged the public to to not show up in in person to to monitor proceedings online. He got some flack for that, um, but it turned out to be probably the right call because 
Um, on Monday, there was there was a handful of lobbyists, a handful of reporters, and as I mentioned earlier, roughly 200 lawmakers who had packed the House and Senate to vote on these measures. And it turned out, and the the measures passed overwhelmingly. It was unanimous in the Senate. It was there was only one no vote in the House, so it was it was not a close vote by any means. But as it turned out, we found out two days later that one of those state senators, as you mentioned, Brandon Beach, a Republican from Alpharetta, had showed up. Um, he was he was bystanders noticed he was visibly sick um, that day. He wasn't like coughing up a lung or anything, but he didn't look well. Um, but he had showed up. He thought he had a bronchial infection. He thought he always gets sort of a every year he says he gets a sinus infection. And he thought, and he he thought it was just a recurrence of that. And he said that doctors had his doctors had even told them it was a recurrence of that. But he was tested on on the Saturday before that Monday vote um, for coronavirus for COVID nineteen, the disease caused by the coronavirus. And he got back the results on a Wednesday. Turned out he was positive. It caused the entire legislative branch of Georgia to be urged to self isolate. Many lawmakers are doing that. Jeff Duncan is doing that. Uh, the, the lieutenant governor, um, Senate and House leaders are self-isolating. So it caused all sorts of af- uh, backlash. Um, and he, I had an interview with him just moments ago where I will read you um, what he told me. But he said, um, I'm not a bad person. I would never do this on purpose. I was surprised as anybody. I thought it was my regular sinus bronchitis condition I get every year. Um, I'm and he, he also said this, I can tell you this, I'm convinced that there are other people walking around with this that haven't been tested yet. So ominous words from a state senator um, who is among those in that packed chamber that day. Exactly. And you're seeing a lot of his colleagues who have since gone online to to talk about how they saw that as a really irresponsible move to talk about, especially in the context of some of these doorkeepers in the Capitol who tend to be on the older side um, and just kind of the risk that, that Senator Beach kind of put those people in. Um, but but Senator Beach is also right. Uh, I saw a statistic floating around, um, I think it was yesterday, saying that some 85% of coronavirus cases are people walking around who have no idea that they have it. Um, and that's why you're seeing such pressure on on Governor Kemp to, to start shuttering restaurants and, and bars and to order this shelter in place that you're starting to see in, in places like California. Yeah. And, and part of the reason why, and we can't stress this enough, is that um, especially younger people, so many people are asymptomatic or only show uh, what what medical experts view as mild conditions. So if you think you've been exposed, if you think you've been, if you have any sort of symptoms at all, um, they say to either self-monitor or to self-isolate. Um, and I've been doing the latter. I've been, I've been, I've been self-monitoring and limiting my, my contact with folks. Um, I still have got kids. I've still got a wife. I've still got a family. I've still, I can't completely cut myself off. Um, but, um, they say to self-monitor as much as you can and to self-isolate, um, if you've got any of those symptoms. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's crazy times though. And it's hard to tell with so much information kind of flooding at you from all these sources at all the, at all times. And, you know, scientists are still figuring out how this disease works or how this virus works and what the symptoms are, how it's passed. And so it's really hard. I, I live right next to Piedmont Park. And the, the thing that's been keeping me sane every single day has been my walk. Um, I usually walk around 7 p.m. after work just to kind of clear my head. And you have seen a ton of young people congregate in the park playing soccer, playing different handball type games. And and it's hard to tell, especially when you're young and you're so used to gathering in big groups, uh, what's kosher and what's not anymore. 
You got it. And, and you know, it, it's upended our worlds, too, in terms of covering politics. How do you cover politics if, if there's nothing to cover, if there's no campaigns, if there's no rallies? That is another part of this fallout, is that we were supposed to be talking um, about the looming Georgia primary at this moment, right? I mean, everything was supposed to be ramped up in Georgia. Georgia was not likely to be the decisive vote in the race between Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, even before Joe's, even before Biden's sweeping victories all over all over the nation this past week. But it was still going to be a, 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 a epic moment for Georgia and a chance for, for for voters to see both candidates come down here. Well, obviously, there will not be any candidate visits. There will not be any big moments. There will not be any rallies, nothing. And not only that, um, Georgia's primary was delayed two months um, over the weekend um, to March, to May 19th, when Georgia is holding its uh, other party primaries. It's a, it's a huge move. Um, it, it is, as far as we know, it's, it's unprecedented in, in recent Georgia history to, to push back a presidential primary at, the, at this late of a a date, and it shows how seriously Georgia officials are taking this. This was this was a, a a compromise, an agreement between Republican Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger and, and Nikema Williams, the the head of the Georgia Democratic Party. They both agreed together to take this stance um, because they thought that they had to show sort of a unity in making such a major decision. And not only that, but you're starting to hear the Secretary of State's office talk about mailing out mass absentee ballots to to elderly people over the age of 60 or perhaps 65 in a move to kind of keep them away from the polls because they are indeed so vulnerable. And there are a ton of questions that still remain, such as who will run these polls? Because so many of these poll workers are volunteers, you know, seniors who are retired. Um, and, and we've seen in, in other states where people went ahead with the vote over the last couple of weeks, including Florida and Arizona, where there were mass cancellations of people who were supposed to be working the polls, shortage of um, clean material, hand sanitizer, and, and that sort of thing. So still a lot of questions to be answered in Georgia. One of the crazy phenomenons we've been seeing now is, is how a lot of these state candidates have been trying to keep up the momentum on the campaign trail, even if they can't be out shaking hands, holding rallies, doing anything like that. And you've been seeing a lot of um, online town halls, Facebook lives, that sort of thing, bringing in special guests over Skype to be able to talk to supporters and, and rally the troops, as well as things like like, uh, you know, phone banking from home and trying to get volunteers engaged, even if they can't all congregate in one space. Yeah. How do you how do you mobilize and rally voters if you cannot go if you can't physically be there with them? Right. And the presidential race is one thing. And, and, and even the presidential race is getting vastly overshadowed by this pandemic. But if you're a down ballot candidate, if you're one of these one of the top Democrats running against David Perdue right now, who, who faces a vote in March, in May, I should say, or if you're a congressional candidate, how do you get out there? How do you energize voters? That's 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 the sort of the big question of this pandemic. And look, we, we saw we had a poll that came out, an AJC poll that came out. It was, for, of course, intended to be setting up the, the primary vote. Um, we ordered we, we, we rung it up, you know, late February before we knew how extensive this crisis would be. And one thing that was not all that surprising it showed was that um, Joe Biden's 44 points ahead of, of Bernie Sanders. He was up 66-22 in Georgia, which is a huge margin, but also echoes Bernie Sanders' poor performance here back in uh, 2016 against Hillary Clinton. But the other thing it showed that was really interesting to me was, was 
how large the, the amount of the block of undecided voters still is in Georgia's Senate race. Um, John Ossoff led the field with about 30 percent of the vote. Um, he has the highest name recognition thanks to his 2017 special election, so that might be part of it. Um, his two main opponents, Sarah Riggs Amico and Teresa Tomlinson, were tied at around 15 percent. But roughly 39 to 40 percent of voters were undecided, and that speaks volumes about how much, how how dire the challenges for these candidates are. These ne- We're just two months out. These candidates have to go and convince that huge block of voters to, to side with them because there's so many still who, who haven't tuned into this election. It's been overshadowed by the Kelly Leffler race. It's running in tandem and, of course, overwhelmed by coronavirus. Exactly. The political oxygen, there's just none left. It's, it's hard enough for Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders to, to get some oxygen to talk about their, you know, to, to make their case to voters. But it's especially hard if you're down ballot and, and the public is so distracted with all these daily developments, including the media. We can't keep up with all these <laughs> developments that are cascading across the state. But imagine how hard it is to raise money, especially when so many people are worried about the stability of their jobs. There's so many small businesses that are starting to lay off their workers. As I mentioned, the the huge increase in unemployment claims, that makes it exceedingly hard to raise money for office, especially if you're running behind in the polls and, and you're challenging a, a well-known incumbent or or somebody with big name recognition like John Ossoff. Yeah, this, this certainly seems to the word benefit does not seem like a, a, a the right term to use, but it does seem to help Ossoff and let's say in the congressional races, people like Carolyn Bordeaux, who have high name recognition. Um, probably one of the reasons why Amico was running head to head with Tomlinson, even though Tomlinson has far more endorsements and 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 more campaign events, is because she's probably still uh, benefiting from her name recognition from the 2018 race. So it seems to help the folks who have the, that higher name recognition and the challengers out there, the people who are trying to run insurgent campaigns, um, they've got more work cut out for them. Absolutely. Well, before we go, there is one more major development. Tomorrow was just talking about how it never seems to end. Well, late, late Thursday night, there was another major development. Um, there's been a lot of scrutiny into stock trading um, from from senators who might have been privy to some inside information. Um, a lot of the focus has, has been on Burr, Senator Burr in North Carolina, but also Kelly Leffler um, had, had traded, it looks like, at least hundreds of thousands, if not more than a million dollars worth of stocks. Um, Senate paperwork gives a broad range, so it's hard to pin down an exact number. But um, in the weeks leading toward the coronavirus um, market turndown, um, so there is a lot of criticism of hers. There's even some congressional candidates who are calling for her to step down, uh, not just Democrats, but even some Republicans. And uh, Doug Collins has not weighed in in a forceful way on this yet, but expect him to as he tries to mount his campaign against her uh, and against the Republican establishment here in Georgia. Exactly. And all of this centers after a January 24th briefing that Senator Leffler and, and Senator Burr and, and many other senators on the um, on the Health and uh, Education and Pensions Committee got about the coronavirus in late January. And it's illegal for members of Congress to make any sort of stock trade based on non-public information. So things they might be privy to as lawmakers. They get special briefings from, from agency heads from the White House. They're involved in drafting drafting big legislative packages that may be coming up. And so they're not allowed to use that information um, when it's non-public to, to trade stocks. Uh, but the real question also is, is, especially with Senator Burr, was 
how his his uh, public conversations and, and his messaging to his constituents in the wake of that, especially in early January and February, before a lot of the public concern ramped up about coronavirus, versus what he was telling uh, wealthy and well-connected donors in North Carolina privately. Um, and, it, and it seemed, based on audio that was leaked to NPR, that he was uh, his message was much more dire to those, those donors behind closed doors. So we saw Senator Leffler, after her January 24th briefing, thanking the folks who, who briefed her. But there's a, you know, and we've seen on social media that she's also been very complimentary of how the Trump administration has um, has been doing things, even as others have criticized the administration for not doing enough. So lots of questions here about what she's going to do and how she's going to respond to this. Well, tomorrow we've got so much more to talk about. We all have, we have so little time, but we will be we will be reconvening for another podcast soon. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, we've got. Just everyone stay, stay safe, stay healthy, um, stay away from work if you can. I know that's not, it's not possible for everyone. Um, and hang in there. It's going to be a long one. That's all for this edition of the Politically Georgia podcast. Visit AJC.com slash politics for all the latest in Georgia news. I'm Greg Bluestein signing off. Hip hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.